0: Trust me, I'm like a smart person. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts, various
1: surveys right around the world, showing that uh, confidence in media has dropped in recent years. You are fake news.
2: Should the law be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry? All adult Australians are being asked this question in the same-sex marriage postal survey conducted over recent weeks against a backdrop of intense and often bruising debate. I'm Sunanda Cray. And I'm Lucinda Beeman. And you're listening to Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast from The Conversation, where we ask the academic experts to inform us about everything from the curious to the serious. Today, we're tackling some of the biggest issues emerging in this incredibly fraught national debate on same-sex marriage. Things like, what does the Bible really say about human sexuality? And how does the law protect people's right to hold religious beliefs, as well as people's right to be free of discrimination? We're starting today with Dr Jennifer Power, who authored a recent Fact Check article for The Conversation, Testing Against the Evidence Claims that Children Do Best When They're Raised by a Mother and a Father. Now, Lucinda, you're our Fact Check editor, and you edited this piece uh, by Dr Power. As you were reading through it, what really struck you about what she had to say? Look, what struck me in terms of the spread of misinformation is that some of the studies that are being cited today as credible sources were actually widely critiqued, reviewed, and in some cases discredited many years ago. Yet they continue to be cited uh, as credible Uh, sources to support people's claims about how children um, fare when they're raised in different types of families. That's right. And I I felt like some of that nuance really hasn't come across in a lot of the debate. And it's not always clear, you know, how those studies are designed or what they actually looked at, what types of questions they asked or who who they've sampled, who they've actually surveyed. So um, I really like the way that Jennifer sort of teases that out and explains the impact that survey design and research design can have on the outcome that you get. Dr. Power is speaking today with The Conversation's Deputy Health Editor, Sasha
3: Petrova. Here's a quote from Liberal MP Kevin Andrews, speaking in August.
2: Well, what we know from decades of social science research is that the best environment for raising a children, the optimal environment for raising children, is having two loving parents, uh, a man and a, wo- a woman, a husband and wife, uh, in a stable relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that other relationships aren't able to be successful for children, but overwhelmingly the social science research points to that being the optimal but, but even...
3: So how true is the statement? We asked Kevin Andrews for sources and he referred us to a book he's authored and a number of studies on this issue. You can read his response in full on the Conversation website. But, according to this expert, that's actually not what the majority of research shows.
1: There's been a lot of research on this topic over a number of years and the vast majority of that research really shows that there are no differences in terms of outcomes for children, whether they're raised in an opposite-sex couple household or a same-sex couple household. And that's been pretty consistent across many, many
3: studies in different locations and over the last 10 or 15 years. That's Dr Jennifer Power, Senior Research Fellow at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University. She's reviewed the scientific literature and conducted her own studies on this question. So how can different studies come up with such different results? It often depends on what exactly the studies are measuring.
1: So as I understand it, Kevin Andrews has been a long-time supporter of marriage. So marriage as opposed to people living in a de facto relationship, people of either gender. So he's referring to those studies, and there are, he's right, there's lots of them, which show children raised in a couple, raised by a couple, in a couple relationship that's been stable over the course of that, person's childhood tend to do better than kids raised in other circumstances whether that's single parents or circumstances where there's been a divorce or a separation.
3: Okay so studies show stable relationships are good for kids but that in and of itself doesn't tell us much about children raised by same-sex couples. To understand the studies on that factor and child well-being we need your permission to get a bit technical for a second. Opponents of same-sex marriage um
1: critique a lot of the research that's happened in that area on the methodology. So it gets a bit technical. But essentially a lot of those studies have used um, what we call convenience samples or opt-in samples where you advertise a study and people opt into that um, versus population-based studies, which are those sort of random digit dial studies where you might pick, say, every fifth person on the Medicare register or something. So there's been a few studies um, which have used a more random sampling approach considered the gold standard. um, And so they they argue that these studies are the best studies. um, And they have shown that children with same-sex couple parents are, are poorer on a range of different measures. The problem with those studies is that the way they've defined who's been raised by a same-sex couple can be a little bit dubious. So, for example, in one study, which is the one most regularly cited, called the Regnerist Study from Texas, actually they compared people who were raised in a heterosexual marriage from birth versus anyone who had a parent who'd had a same-sex relationship. And so that may have been kids who'd experienced divorce or separation or who'd been adopted or who were raised by single parents. So the definition of... Um, who's been raised by same-sex parents isn't always very clear or consistent in those studies. They essentially put people into a category of being raised by a lesbian parent or a gay parent if one one of their parents had ever had a relationship with a same-sex, so a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex during that child's childhood between zero and 18. Um, And they compared those kids to any kids who'd been raised from birth by a heterosexual married couple Mm -hmm. who stayed together. Mm -hmm. So essentially what you were comparing was kids who'd had a very stable upbringing versus kids who'd had a whole range of different upbringings, including um, experiences of divorce and separation and family conflict or single parenthood. And so that did show differences. Um, It it did show kids in the same-sex parent group didn't fare as well. Mm -hmm. And that study has been widely cited, widely lauded by opponents of same-sex marriage, and they say it's way more valid than any other study because it, because of its sampling methodology. This is the Regnera study? Yeah, yeah it's the Regnera study. Um, so I will add that that study's actually been widely critiqued for its poor method of identifying who was raised by a same sex parent and for basically comparing apples and oranges. Yeah. And there were some researchers from, I think, Washington University who had access to the data set and they reanalyzed it using a different method of identifying who was raised by a same-sex couple and they found no differences in the re- reanalysis.
3: the studies that found the kids raised by same-sex couples are actually doing quite okay? Probably the one most
1: regularly cited actually is a meta-analysis and that included 33 studies. It was published in 2010 um, and it looked at children raised by single gender families, so single parents or same-sex couples compared to opposite-sex couples. So it was really looking at whether the outcomes of children varied um, with respect to the gender of parents and/ or the sexuality of parents. Um, and that found children raised by same-sex couples um, didn't fare worse on any of these measures. So it was looking um, and so they looked at educational measures, they looked at a range of psychological measures, things like cognitive development and early sexual activity um, and drug use, that kind of thing. And so they didn't actually find any differences across those 33 studies between children raised
3: by same-sex versus opposite-sex couples. Dr Power cited another Australian study on 500 kids who had been raised by at least one same-sex attracted parent. The study found those children did just as well as others. Similar results were found in data from the US National Survey of Children's Health. However, Jennifer Power is upfront about the limitations of many of these studies, particularly those that rely on people volunteering to be involved in the research. So
1: essentially most of these studies are widely advertised, we're looking for parents with children, same-sex couple parents with children to participate in the study um, and people opt in. And you know that's by necessity because there isn't obviously a census or a sampling frame of same-sex couples that can be drawn on for this kind of research. So it's a pretty common method when you're doing any kind of research with inhumanities or or with minority groups. But the problem with this is that it can introduce bias into your sample. So you might attract people who are more connected to community or more connected with services because they've heard about the study. You might find people who are more assertive or active or confident or better resourced than other families who choose not to participate in the study. Or you might find people who are actively wanting to present a particular view, which is the main criticism made of these studies. So it's often argued that the parents only participate in these studies because they want to prove that their families, that their kids are doing well. So there's a lot of critique about sampling bias bias that's been levelled at these studies. At the ones that that show no... no, Yeah, at the ones that show no difference. And so a lot of people who oppose same-sex marriage, basically write off all the research in that, in that area on the basis of it being a, con- a convenient sample. Although bearing in mind there are some emerging studies that have used population data, such as the the one I just referred to on the US National Survey of Children's Health. So that argument I don't think stands up entirely.
3: So there is evidence to show that a stable family um, structure does actually benefit children. So in a lot of the cases, what that research is confirming is that fact that stability is good for kids, instability is not good for kids, and instability is not synonymous with a same-sex relationship.
1: That's exactly right. And so uh, so Kevin Andrew's comment on being, on there being decades and decades of research showing that kids do better with marriage is about stability. Yes. So yes, exactly what you just said, kids do better with um, stability in terms of their who's raising them in terms of where they live, in terms of not having a lot of change over the course of their life, or conflict. Conflict is well-known, well-documented to be bad for kids, so parental
3: conflict. So I guess what that shows is that it's really not a black and white issue. It's really not uh, a case of saying, you know, one one um, type of family does better than another type of family. There's so many factors to account for and being in a same-sex attracted relationship is really just one factor among very many. And the studies that have compared the two, you know, same-sex um, couple relationships and heterosexual relationships and kids within those relationships have shown that the two are pretty much similar. I mean, overall, if you put all the studies together. Is that kind of the...
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. The repeated studies over many times have showed that the kids are fine being raised <laughs> by same-sex couples. Like it's 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 really consistent. Limitations of methodology aside, it's it's just that finding's been repeated over and over again. But as we said before, stability, does affect children so anything that can be done to ensure stability which may be allowing same-sex marriage because there is evidence that marriage does facilitate greater longevity of relationships you know that could actually help outcomes for children.
2: you boil it down, the same-sex marriage postal survey is asking us a question about the law. So we went to Renee Barker, a law lecturer at the University of Western Australia. She's an expert on the relationship between religion and the state, and she began by explaining what she saw as some of the legal issues at play here.
4: This debate around same-sex marriage and whether or not we should legalise to allow for same-sex marriage or as the the uh, debate usually calls it marriage equality raises a number of issues for uh, freedom of religion so the first of these and perhaps the most incontroversial is whether or not religious ministers would be required to conduct same-sex marriages and the simple answer to that is no they won't so religious ministers currently under the law are permitted under the marriage act to refuse to conduct a marriage on pretty much any basis and usually that's going to be because the, the couple wanting to get married are not adherents of their faith, uh, do not comply with the religious requirements of that particular faith. Now many religious ministers have a very wide interpretation of who they will and won't marry, but others don't and they can take a much narrower view. So, post the legalisation of same-sex marriage, that law is unlikely to change. And so a religious marriage celebrant would be permitted to refuse to marry a same-sex couple if the tenets of their religion don't permit the marriage of same-sex carols and several religious groups have come out and said that that will be their position. Uh, The next freedom of religion issues is around civil celebrants. So civil celebrants are able to conduct marriages in Australia, in fact the majority of marriages today are conducted by civil rather than religious celebrants so there's concern that whether or not they would be able to refuse to uh, participate in same-sex marriages and as the law currently stands they will have to conduct same-sex marriages because the normal anti discrimination laws will apply to them.
2: Jennifer Williams is an associate at this flower shop. She regards the Bible as the rule book for her life. She doesn't believe refusing service to a gay couple is discrimination.
4: The next group is what is sometimes referred to as conscientious objectors. So these are individuals, uh, small companies, who will be engaged in the wedding industry. So they might make cakes, they might have flowers, they might have, run a venue hire, they might be musicians and they're concerned that they will be required to participate in a same-sex marriage by providing their service and therefore if their religious beliefs object uh, conflict with that they would be effectively tacitly providing support to something their religion objects to. There have been legal cases overseas is where people engage in the wedding industry for want of a better phrase who have a conscientious objection to same-sex marriages have uh, been required by the law to either take part or effectively lead the industry. So businesses and individuals who provide services to the public generally need to comply with the anti-discrimination laws. So if there is a basis in the anti-discrimination laws in which they're not permitted to discriminate, so for example race, age, sexuality, religion, then they can't discriminate in the provision of that service unless they have an exemption. So for example, religious organisations do have an exemption to some uh, discrimination laws, particularly around gender and sexuality. Um, So if it's a religious organisation providing the service, so example, a church with their hiring out their church building, then they probably will be exempt. But an ordinary member of the public providing their services are not permitted to discriminate on a basis that is covered by anti-discrimination law.
5: Let's just remind you what this is all about. The owners of a bakery in County Antrim in Northern Ireland, where I live, have been found guilty of discrimination after Uh, They refused to bake a cake for a gay customer with the slogan supporting same-sex marriage. Gareth Lee, a gay rights activist, took the Isher's baking company to court after they cancelled his order for a cake with the message, support gay marriage on it. They refused to make it on the grounds they said that it went against their Christian beliefs.
4: So the so-called Cakegate case is a case which involved Ash's Bakery and in this case a bakery was asked to bake a cake for a same-sex pro-same-sex rally. It wasn't actually a wedding industry case because it wasn't actually for a same-sex wedding but it was in the, in the same genre. And they were asked to bake a cake that was going to have an image of Bert and Ernie on it and words to the effect of support same-sex marriage. The bakery initially took the application, took the the request for a cake and then later when they realised what the cake was for and the wording they were being requested to put on the cake, rang the couple back and said, look, we can't do this. Unsurprisingly, the people who had commissioned the cake were distressed by this and took it to the courts. And in, it's gone through several iterations of the courts in the UK and it may yet still have some further legal wrangling in the European Court of Human Rights and at a higher level. But ultimately, what the court found was that the bakery was not entitled to refuse to take that order. Uh, That raises two very particular issues in human rights. One is the right to freedom of religion, so the conscientious objectors who object to uh, same-sex marriage on personal or religious basis, as the owners of the bakery were here. So they are effectively being required to engage in a service which uh, is contrary to their religious beliefs. And the second here is freedom of speech, particularly because this cake had writing on it. So in effect, the bakery were being asked to make a speech, say something that was contrary to their own religious views. Um, And so as a result, that raises two very important issues for the current debate in Australia, post the legalization of same-sex marriage. In fact, even today, to what extent should and does the law require a person who objects to same-sex marriage to provide a service that may appear to support a same-sex relationship, and second, to what extent should or can they be required to write something or say something that may be uh, supportive of same-sex marriages.
0: Honourable Members, the Speaker.
4: Almighty God
2: we humbly beseech Thee to vouchsafe Thy blessing upon this Parliament. Direct and prosper our deliberations to the advancement of Thy glory and the true welfare of the people of Australia. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name,
4: Thy kingdom come, So one of the first questions that often gets raised when religion gets raised in any public discourse is, isn't Australia a secular country, so why is religion even relevant? So whether or not Australia is a secular country largely depends on what you mean by secular. But in Australia, this place to start is Section 116 of the Australian Constitution. So that section, amongst other things, prohibits the federal government from setting up a state church. So in Australia, we don't have a state church, unlike, for example, the United Kingdom, which has the Church of England as the state church, and many other countries through Europe and around the world have state churches. So we're prohibited from doing so, and that makes Australia formally secular. Beyond that, Australia is secular in that, at a political level, religion isn't the dominant discourse. It is one discourse amongst many. So, Australia takes what's known as a pluralist approach to secularism. Rather than saying religion over there, uh, separate to the state, we say that religion is one voice amongst many in public discourse. Politicians, for example, are quite free to express their religious views, but that's not given any more privilege than a politician expressing their secular views. How does that play out in this particular context? Is that those arguing on religious basis against same-sex marriage are once again just one voice amongst many, as are those arguing for uh, same-sex marriage on non-religious basis. Consequences of this, uh, as seen all over the world, is a diminution of freedom. It affects your freedom of speech, your freedom of religion, freedom of association. Freedom of religion is not absolute. And neither is anti-discrimination law, both are rights, absolutely, but both have limitations, particularly where they impinge upon the rights of others. And in this instance, they may well impinge upon each other. So the right to freedom of religion may be impinged and impinged upon freedom, right not to be discriminated against. And so therefore, getting the balance right is going to be first a question of working out what, as a society, we believe that balance should be should somebody be permitted to refuse to provide a service uh, where they don't agree with the beliefs of the person they're providing the service to, that's a conversation we have to have as a society. And what the correct balance is, isn't something that's going to be easily determined simply on an objective basis. It's going to need to be carefully discussed and debated, and we need to be prepared for whatever the consequences of that might be. So one consequence of saying that someone must provide a service is that these small businesses will effectively have to go out of business or may have to go out of business or have to do something that they conscientiously object very strongly to. Now we as a society might say that is an acceptable outcome. On the other hand, if we say they are permitted to discriminate on the basis of their religious beliefs, then those who are seeking their services are likely to suffer hurt, potentially humiliation and distress when they go and ask for a cake for their wedding or flowers for their wedding. That's a very exciting moment in a person's life, getting married. Now, in some circumstances, they will easily be able to find another service provider but that may not always be the case. So are we prepared to have a situation where somebody seeks a service and because of religious objections, they're unable to provide a service provider to help them with their wedding? So we need to decide which of those two outcomes or somewhere in the middle, we are prepared as a society to be acceptable. And that's going to need a mature, reasoned, uh, polite political debate. Um, And I'm not quite sure we're having that just yet.
2: As the same-sex marriage debate has unfolded, we've heard some in the no-camp appeal to biblical values to support their case. But what does the Bible actually say on this question? Our final guest today, Robin J. Whitaker, is really well-placed to answer that question. She is a lecturer in biblical studies and an expert on particularly critical biblical scholarship. That's where academics draw on literary criticism, archaeology, history, philology. That's the study of language in written historical sources. I checked that out and looked it up and social science to offer the most plausible, historically grounded interpretation of the Bible. Conversation Deputy Editor Karis Palmer sat down with Dr Whittaker to find out more.
5: The first thing I'd say is that not all Christians are opposed. There's a significant... In fact, if we believe the polls, the majority of Christians who just attend church do support marriage equality. I think what we're seeing here are a couple of dynamics. One is... Uh, what I would call the dying cries of Christendom, and that is we have church leaders who are so used to being the ultimate moral power in society um, and having huge amounts of influence and not coping so well with having that wane as society is changing. And um, the recent census, you know, pointed to that shift that Christians are still the slight majority altogether, but actually there's been a massive decline and an increase in other faiths. So it has to do with power and then I think for a lot of Christians it has to do with how you interpret the Bible uh, and that there are these biblical passages that seem to condemn homosexuality and, and f- therefore it's about defending biblical authority and that can be very closely aligned with defending God.
0: As an ordained Uniting Church minister and an academic, how does same-sex marriage make sense to you in the context of your faith? Do you think Christians who support marriage equality are being heard?
5: I think we are being heard to a certain extent. I think the no voice is coming out louder in media. For me, I make sense of it in my faith in a couple of ways. The first is to say there is a clear separation of church and state here. So as a Christian, I want to live in a society that is fair and equitable for people, you know, of all faiths and none. And so supporting a change to the Marriage Act so that same-sex people can get married for me is about just the kind of society I want to live in, which is an equal one. But as a person of faith, I also would be in favour, and, and this is where perhaps I differ to some Christians, I would also be in favour of having Christian marriages for people of the same sex. And that to me is probably based on a different set of criteria and has more to do with a theology of marriage that says two people making a radical, lifelong commitment to each other reflects in some ways the kind of commitment that God makes to us as human beings. One uh, that is mutual, one that is covenantal um, and, and requires a, a deep commitment. And for me that is a good that can apply whether it's, we're talking people of the opposite sex or not.
0: What does the Bible specifically tell us about marriage and homosexuality? Is homosexuality really something a Christian God would not tolerate?
5: This is the the tricky area. In short, I would say the Bible actually says nothing about homosexual marriage, and that's because culturally it didn't exist two to three thousand years ago, when most of the Bible was written. Um, and there's some debate amongst scholars about if there was even an understanding of kind of homosexual orientation or sexual orientation generally. There are there are some people who say that was understood to be a, a preference in the ancient world, but it's really hard to, to know that with any um, definitive knowledge. What the Bible does talk about um, when it does address sexuality, which it actually doesn't talk about very much, despite what might be the perception <laughs> in the public sphere, is the Bible does... Appear to condemn same sex acts. And I think here we get into difficult translation issues. So often what the Bible is condemning is um, two people who are perhaps married and are therefore, you know, their same sex activity is part of adultery and a wider kind of critique of any kind of immoral behaviour. We also have passages that talk about, they're condemning, and and the Greek words that get used are words that probably are describing pederasty, so that's um, sex between older men and boys who are often, even their trainees, um, their interns, that kind of thing, Um, or prostitution, male prostitution. And there I think we're seeing a condemnation again of any kind of sexual act that's outside some sort of agreed societal structures. But also we're seeing a male nervousness. Most of the time the Bible talks about male homosexual acts, very little about women. And I think there too we're seeing the effects of patriarchy and a great nervousness about male penetration and what that means for masculinity and power.
0: Are there some key passages in the Bible that are kind of taken out of context. Can you give some examples you know, in terms of the historical context as it applies here and what should, how it should be understood? Yeah, sure.
5: There's about six or seven verses that people will go to and cite. Uh, I'll, let me just use a couple of examples here. One of them um, in the New Testament is a list in 1 Corinthians 6 that talks about a whole lot of sort of vices, if you like. These are things people do that will exclude them from God's kingdom. And in that list is a word that's often translated in English Bibles, homosexuality or homosexual. Uh, And it's from a Greek word, malakoi, that in other places means soft So it's sometimes used to describe fine clothing, for example. So it has a completely non-sexual meaning as well. But we do know it was used colloquially for um, the, the male partner who might take on what we'd call the more traditionally feminine role. So there I think we do have to really question whether the word homosexual is a good translation of that And even if it is, it is not describing marriage or an equal relationship. It is again describing something that these days we would say is abusive in terms of the power dynamics. Another example might be to go back to the Old Testament. And the verse that we see trotted out a lot is actually from Genesis 2 where it talks a a male leaving his family and cleaving to his wife. It still gets read in many marriage services um, if you get married in a Christian church. And the issue here is that that is being used by some Christians as, it, as if it is prescriptive. That is this what I would call a descriptive passage that is in talking about the creation of Adam and Eve as an etiological tale that explains why the what world is the way it is. Um, this comment is thrown in there that that's why a man leaves his family and cleaves to his wife. Um, it's sort of a way of explaining that deep attraction that can actually break up families or or be such a strong powerful force but that's not to say that that verse is meant to be prescriptive and therefore dictate the way every human relationship should happen it's within a mythical narrative and not within a law text and there I would say literary context as well as looking at the sources behind that text make a huge difference to the way we translate it.
0: And just lastly, if the polls are right and the yes case wins, how will the Christian churches respond, do you think?
5: I suspect the majority of Christian churches will continue doing exactly what they're doing now. That is, uh, they're under no obligation to change their own teaching. They will continue to have religious freedom, as we do now in the church, to refuse marriage to anyone who doesn't fit the criteria that that church or religious group has determined. And that looks different for every denomination. So in many ways, nothing needs to change. There are a couple of churches, however, actively talking about it. One of them is the Uniting Church, which is my denomination. I don't know how soon things will change. And there are a wide diversity of views on this. But there certainly are some of us who would want to see our church respond by taking the time to sort of re-examine our own sort of teaching about marriage and our own language and to say, can we have a look at whether we can change that or write new liturgies and new marriage services so that we could actually offer same-sex marriage to people who want a
0: Christian service, not just
5: a civil service.
0: Yeah, that will obviously take some time. Do you think that that, um, if there was a yes vote, that there would be a concerted push for that to happen fairly quickly?
5: Again, it probably depends which denomination you're in. I think, yes, there will be some churches who this is on the agenda for sort of the next year or so. We we could see change in 12 months. The church moves very slowly, though, so I wouldn't hold your breath. Um, Having said that, in America, when the state law changed... Uh, within about two years, we saw some major denominations. So they're the Episcopal Church and then the Presbyterian Church in 2015, both changed their own um, teaching so that their clergy could, if they wanted to, they were under no duress, but it was a matter of conscience that their clergy could offer same-sex marriage. And we've seen that happen more recently in Scotland and some other places. So I think we will inevitably see change. It could take
0: a few years. <laughs> It's really interesting. Was um, there anything else that you would add?
5: I think when we face a change to the Marriage Act, we're seeing a lot of fear of just change itself. And it helps to have a bit of a historic perspective that marriage, the Marriage Act itself has already changed several times in the last 100 to 120 years. Once upon a time, a woman had to quit her job when she got married. Um, before that, she was actually considered virtually property um, and didn't have the same rights under the law um, you know more recently, we changed to no fault divorce. In each of those instances, uh, you know society has carried on, I would say we're actually the better for it. And the churches have been able to continue to practice according to their own um, doctrines and teachings. So we're seeing a lot of confusion about change is bad, slippery slope, um, effects on religious freedom, and yet this is something we've done as a society numerous times in the last century and I would say each of those cases has actually been better, particularly for those who have had less power, like women, and in this case now, the LGBTI community.
2: Thanks for listening today to this episode of Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast from the conversation. Special thanks today to our guest Dr. Jennifer Power from La Trobe University, Dr. Renee Barker from the University of Western Australia, and Dr. Robin J. Whitaker from the University of Divinity. Thank you to The Conversation editors Lucinda Beeman, Sasha Petrova and Karis Palmer, and also to Reese Wolfe for recording and production support. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho, and we've used music in this episode from Poddington Bear Blue Dot Sessions and Scott Grattan from Free Music Archive. Trust me, I'm an expert is out at the start of every month and we've got some fascinating interviews in episodes ahead. One on the science of pain and one on Australia's almost forgotten history of Catholic and Protestant sectarianism as well as a bunch of really interesting stories all around the theme of competition. Find us and subscribe in iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.